0: Uh, for just one correction here. First of all, I think this is the first time
1: that I've actually had any advance notice I would be speaking in chapel in about two years. Usually I get the call at about 11 o'clock the night before, so I I appreciate being here and having a chance to actually prepare. As a two-time graduate of Southeastern, I can tell you that this seminary is uh, perhaps the greatest, if not one of the greatest, ministry-shaping experiences of my life. It is a seminary that exists for the Great Commission. Um, I think that is very clear. I read recently um, in an article I was looking at that five of the top sending churches to the International Mission Board are within a 10 mile radius of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Once you to make sure you let that sink in for a minute, five over ha- or half of the churches out of all the different seminaries half of the churches that are sending the most people to the international edition board are within a 10 mile radius of this seminary folks that is not accidental That is a testament to Dr. Aiken's visionary leadership, his vision, and his 15 years of service as president of this school, and so we are all blessed and grateful for him, and so let me add my voice to the many that have spoken today. In addition to that, as he mentioned, he has just been an incredible friend. I don't know if I have a better friend and supporter in ministry. Um, I got asked the other day in an interview, an odd question, Um, they asked right toward the end, they said, okay, one one last question, they said, "Um, you know, if you had to go into a, a street fight and you could only take a, like five people for, with you, you know, who would you take? Danny Aiken was at the top of my list, <laughs> um, without question. He's not that big, but he's scrappy. You've got cat-like <laughs> reflexes. You have saw that, and he's just a guy that will not give up. You've seen that, you know, kind of poster of the, you know, like the dog that's holding on to the bus while the bus is driving down. That is Danny Aiken, and that's the kind of friend uh, that he has been to me, and I'm deeply grateful for him. I've been asked to announce that after chapel today, um, lunch is going to be provided for anybody here on campus that wants to come and celebrate this milestone, this 15-year milestone in his leadership. I've also been asked to remind you gently that if you do not show up for that, it is because you do not love Dr. Aiken and you don't love the Great Commission. So, no pressure, but we'll try to see you there. Um, well, one other small think uh, you said, 1,000 churches by 2015. Uh, we have some audacious goals at the Summit Church, but that is not a one of them. It's 2050, okay? So, going back in time is not part of that. Uh, well, today, we don't. We don't just celebrate 15 years, uh, we also look forward to the next phase of Dr. Akins' vision for Southeastern, uh, one that m- myself and um, our church is very committed to. Um, is vision for Southeastern, the uh, Southeastern family, family is today publicly launching for the mission, which is a four year, 20 and half million dollar campaign that will enable this school to be more strategic in advancing the gospel around the globe. And so I know that many of Southeastern's greatest supporters are here, and we know many of the people that love this seminary And so we're very excited to be a part of that. And Dr. Aiken, we commit uh, on behalf of all Southeastern faculty and alumni that we um, are going to join you in believing God for that great thing, okay? It's also a very special day for me personally because so many of you are being commissioned um, uh, to go overseas. It's very personally meaningful because I was in the second ever 2 plus 2 program here from Southeastern. Uh, I was here when it was still in the guinea pig stage. Uh, I will tell those of you who are being commissioned that we have gotten a lot better, they have gotten a lot better at training you for what was, what is ahead than they were when I was a student. Um, I got dropped off in a village in Southeast Asia that was 100 miles from the nearest English-speaking person with a total, a grand total of three days of language training. Um, in the language, um, which again, nobody spoke English, I could say, hi, my name is JD, where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. Uh, that was the extent of everything I could say. Uh, I had been, uh, been groomed in a number of what I now refer to as urban missionary myths. Um, I learned them here at Southeastern, such as, for example, that in Asian cultures, you have to eat everything that they put in front of you. Other Otherwise, it is an insult to them that you will never recover from. I just want to tell you, as an experienced missionary, that is not true, and that will save your life if you understand that going into there. Um, you know, when I got there, I was like, "All right, you know, you put it down. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to do it for Jesus. I'm going to take one for Team Jesus." The result was, and I'm not exaggerating this, I lost 14 pounds the first week that I was there. Uh, it was through what I now call the um, the rapid expulsion method of weight loss. Uh, I don't know if that community, if you take a walk balloon and poke a hole in the top and the bottom, squeeze the middle, that will give you a visual image of what that, uh, that diet program is like. I would not recommend it, by the way. Uh, the real kicker for me, though, was um, after I'd been there a few months, I um, and I was starting to get adjusted, my, uh, my mom, who uh, Dr. Akin mentioned is, is here, sent me a, a kind of a care package, and it had some American food in it, Pop-Tarts, Mountain Dew, and uh, ragu spaghetti sauce. And so I thought, this is great, I'm going to cook this for all of my Southeast Asian friends and give them a, an American meal. I had about six of them over, and I served to them my best um, a, a rendition of Carol Greer spaghetti, and I remember one of them put it in his mouth, and he just screwed his face up, and he's like, I'm sorry, we can't eat this. Uh, he said, this is just too unusual, and I was like, uh-uh. You have to eat it in your culture or that's an insult. You will never recover from. Uh, So it's not true, it's not true and you heard it here. Okay, so uh, suffice it to say, I'm glad they've gotten a lot better at this Um, and um, I'm grateful to be a part of of this seminary. Dr. Aiken asked me if I could make my message to you today, part of the commissioning process, uh, which I was very honored to do. So if you got your Bible with you this morning and I trust that you do, if you'll open it to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, while you're turning there, I'll tell you that I one time heard a story about an old grandfather who was sitting out on his porch in his country home with his grandson, Uh, he had about 10 dogs that were underneath the porch and um, all of a sudden, uh, kind of out of nowhere, one of the dogs pops his head up out of his nap and he lets out a single yap and he takes off across this field. Um, One by one, all the other dogs uh, rouse from their slumber, they all let out a similar kind of bark and they take off across the field after this one dog and they're just barking their, uh, their heads off. The grandfather looks at the grandson he says son let me tell you what's about to happen here he said in just a minute about 10 minutes you're going to have each of those 10 dogs come back one by one they're going to have their tail between their legs they're going to uh their tongues are going to be out and they're going to come back and take their position here under the porch and go back to sleep he said that'll happen in about 10 minutes he said "In about 30 minutes in about 30 minutes that first dog is going to come back and he's going to have a rabbit in his mouth he says you want to know what the difference is between that first dog and those nine that come back so early He said, the difference is he's the only one that actually saw the rabbit. The others are just yapping and barking because it's just good to be around people who are yapping and barking. Um, It's a lesson of leadership that ultimately what sustains you, what drives you is not excitement, And it's easy to get excited in a place like this. It's when you see, it's when you see the thing that you were going after. The reason I share that is because today you're gonna get a peek inside the heart of a man who by his own admission says he ran harder and and gave more and sacrificed more than anybody else that was a part of his generation. And you get to look inside of his heart and see what moved and motivated him. Colossians 1, the letter to the Colossians was written in in part to address a concern that the Colossians, a church that had been planted by the apostles. Paul, a question that they were raising about Paul's suffering. Their question was, Paul, listen, if you really are God's messenger, if you really are God's messenger, why are you in prison? And doesn't that discourage you? How do you keep going? We don't understand. We don't understand why you would be this if you're God's man, and we also don't know what motivates you. Verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1 is Paul's answer to that question. Now, I'm just going to tell you, it is hard to put Paul's words here into a tight little concise outline because Paul, in my opinion, just starts throwing out things in kind of a stream of consciousness explaining what moves and motivates him. Uh, so rather than presenting this passage to you in the form of an outline, uh, if I were a preaching genius and I had had the opportunity to take Jim Shaddix's class when I was here, but he wasn't here when I was here, I could probably do it. Uh, but I'm just not a preaching genius. And so I'm going to do something a little different. I'm just going to, just going to kind of walk you through this passage. Imagine you're on one of those like big bus tours at one of these cities where, you know, you pull out of the station and then you stop and they point out something and you drive another half mile, they point out something else and it feels kind of random and you know, there's just a lot of cool stuff that you don't want to miss. That's kind of how I want to treat this passage. And then when we get to the end, as we get ready to pull back into the station, I'm going to give you some reflection questions based um, uh, on, on, on the passage that I think are really pertinent for us, particularly for those of you who are being commissioned, all right? All right, so here we go. Verse 24, now Paul says, I'm reading from the CSB, which is required of the SBC president, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. All right, stop. I realize we just left the station, but uh, this is really, really confusing to the Colossians, and Paul knew it was going to be confusing, and it should be to you as well. You rejoice in your sufferings, Paul. I mean, I know that that sounds spiritual, but Paul, are you just so spiritual? Are you so spiritual that suffering just doesn't move you anymore? You know, that he was just so above it all and so into God that he didn't care about the trivial things like freedom or or friendship or family or creature comforts. No, that's not what the case is. In fact, if any, that's a a Buddhist approach to suffering that has kind of smuggled its way into Christian thinking. Paul loved people and he loved creature comforts just like the rest of us would. If anything, Paul's walk with Christ made him love these things more deeply, not less, because that's what happens when you become a Christian. You begin to see God's beauty in everything and you begin to love people more deeply. And so if anything, it drives you to love these things even more. And so it's not that Paul was so detached, it's just here's the thing, Joyful sacrifice is when you give up something you love for something you love even more. And Paul loved seeing people come to Christ even more than he loved his personal freedoms, even more than he loved his creature comforts. You see, you rejoice in suffering when what you are gaining through suffering is better than what you are are giving up in suffering. And without that kind of love, without that kind of joy, you're never going to be able to endure in ministry. It is a joy that Paul knew came from, from knowing the joy that Jesus had when he had gone to the cross for Paul. And Paul said, if that's the joy that motivated Jesus, that that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, that's a joy that I can have for others. I've heard this process sometimes compared to childbirth. Before the birth of our first child, first of our four, people always told me, oh, oh, childbirth, it is so, so beautiful. I can tell you having been present during four childbirths now. There ain't a lot of beautiful in the whole process itself. Honestly, it's kind of scary. I was like, when does the beautiful part start? Like, is this supposed to be happening? When does — how is this working? Who would go through all of this voluntarily? Who would call the process beautiful? Yet, I know that almost every single mother in here would enthusiastically respond, I would, In fact, they would wave away the thought of their suffering and they would say to their child, if that's what it took to bring you into the world, then I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. It is totally and completely worth it. That's how Paul, that's what Paul said to the Colossians. This is how I feel about you spiritually. I rejoice in my suffering for you because of what I know it is producing in you. It's not that I'm okay with giving up all this stuff. It hurts me like it hurts you, but I have joy and sacrifice because I'm giving up what I love for something I love even more, and therefore, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pay whatever price I must in order for you to know Jesus. Again, joyful sacrifices, giving up something you love for something you love even more, and it's the only thing that will sustain you in the mission. So Paul says, far from being discouraged by these sufferings, I rejoice because of what it produces in you. In fact, in the next verse, Paul even takes it up a level. He says, in fact, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Now, honestly, on the surface, this is a staggering statement. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Hadn't Jesus's final words or some of his final words from the cross been, it is finished? Had he not done everything necessary to save us? Was he not now seated at the right hand of God, signifying that the work of our salvation was finished? So why or how could Paul say that something was lacking? Well, of course, you know that in one sense, the work of salvation is complete. Jesus really has sat down at the right hand of the Father. But in another sense, Paul is coming at, the saving act is not complete until the people hear about it and they respond. Martin Luther famously said it like this, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. Carl F.H. Henry, the way he said it is, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's good news, we say, but it's only good news to that person if it gets there in time for them. Paul is saying Christ's sufferings are not complete in the fullest sense until you, that Jesus died for, hear and respond. And if it takes my suffering to bring that to pass, that is a suffering I will gladly embrace and gladly go through because I have my mind on what Jesus gave up so that he could bring it to me and that's now what I've gotta do for you. I love the way that one Romanian pastor said it. Christ's cross was for propitiation. Ours is for propagation. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Listen, let me give you a a hard and rather unpopular teaching. Um, By the way, these are the kind of statements that build a church. Suffering is the appointed means by which God has ordained that he is going to bring salvation into the world. We tend to want it through prosperity and blessing. So we talk about growing churches and increasing platforms, but Jesus told his disciples right before he left, I'm sending you into the world the way that the father sent me. And how did the father send Jesus? He sent him not to grow and thrive. He sent him to suffer and die. When Christ bids a man to follow, he bids him come and die. And he said, just like I brought salvation through suffering, you are going to bring salvation to them through suffering. What I did to bring salvation to you, you're going to go through to carry salvation to them. In fact, if you're taking notes, maybe you would write it down this way. Life in the world only comes through death in the church. Life in the world only comes through death in the church. Here is a question that you will be asked over and over and over again throughout the course of your ministry. Is that a price that you are willing to pay? Is that a price that you are willing to pay? In fact, let me ask you to consider, what did it cost you to receive the free gift of salvation? The answer of course is nothing at all, Jesus paid it all. The question for followers of Jesus, especially those of us that are called to the ministry is are you now willing to do what it takes for people all over the world to know and to hear that message? Because apart from our wounds, he said, apart from our wounds, they will not hear and they will not believe. For some of you, this is going to become more than just theory. Just theory. I remember uh, when I was in Southeast Asia, it was a Muslim area, and I was invited to um, observe the, 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 the worship uh, on al Adha, where they sacrificed um, a cow uh, commemorating when Abraham sacrificed his son, which they believe is Ishmael. And I remember standing there at the front of this gigantic mob as these—it these, was about seven or eight men held this bull down. It was one of the most gruesome things I'd ever seen. I grew up in church. I'd heard about sacrifices. I had never seen one with my, with my own eyes. And as they held this bull down and as that Islamic priest, the imam, took the knife and he began to cut through that neck of that, of that bull Um, I just remember I'd never imagined it would be so much blood. I mean, just blood everywhere just covered me. It covered everybody around me. He sawed about halfway through the neck of that beast as it kicked and it wheezed. And for about 45 seconds, it just laid there and it died. And I remember watching that and just being overwhelmed with this sense of two things, first of all. Number one, this was the picture that was given to Israel of what Jesus would go through when he purchased my salvation. This was the divinely chosen picture. He didn't shield them from this. He put it in for them to observe on a regular basis, something that in 21st century America, we don't really see that much anymore. This was what he was going to pay. And then the second thought was, this is what I've called you to, to bring salvation to these people. I remember standing there just overwhelmed as I'm looking, according to Romans 12, 1, of what the picture of my life was supposed to be. I'm just going to tell you, when I was in seminary dreaming about future ministry, that is not the image that I had in mind. Is that the image you have in mind as you go into ministry? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice daily like that animal. Is that the image you, you have of that? When I was in Southeast Asia a few, several couple months later, I didn't realize how prescient, how how God was asking me a question, he was actually going to ask me for my answer later. There was a, a situation where um, some, a local mission team that uh, we partnered with were passing out some Bibles in this language of this people um, that we were serving in. This people had never had a, lang- a copy of the Bible in their language. And so we brought them in. Um, they were passing these Bibles out. It was about 10 minutes from where I lived when a mob of about 2,500 people collapsed on them. Uh, the police arrested them put them in prison. The mob was demanding they release these people, uh, two of which were Americans and two were local um, uh, so they could kill them. Um, uh, They uh, burned their cars, both their cars, they torched them, burned them to the ground. Um, I remember um, hearing about this about Again, you know, it was about 10 minutes away. Um, uh, my neighbor, had it not been for my neighbor, who was the mayor of the town, stepping in and telling this mob that they couldn't come for us either. I'm not sure how this story would end, but he, he basically said, listen, I'm going to put you under house arrest until I get this thing resolved. So for about 10 days, about two weeks, we were there in house arrest, couldn't go anywhere. Um, I, I can tell you something. It's one thing to sit in a chapel service, to come forward, to kneel down at an altar and say, I'm ready to give my life for Christ. It's quite another when you think somebody is showing up to take you up on that offer. And I'm telling you, I rethought everything. And, and I'm, I'm actually not super proud of how I processed all that because I was terrified. I, I even considered like uh, my, my, my boss, my supervisor said, well, you can't run. He says, I know you just want to leave in the middle of the night, but if you do, they're going to know uh, that you're connected to it. And that's going to connect a lot of more people to this. And he said, you just got to stay there and wait this thing out. And I remember saying, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I did when I joined the 2 Plus 2 program. And God just kept whispering to me, Romans 12, 1 and 2, are you ready to be a sacrifice for me? Um, it was uh, after we were released from our house arrest, it was a couple weeks later, tensions were still kind of high. And um, I was on a bus going to the, the job that, that I worked while I was there, and we passed over this place where these guys had been arrested. Um, and it was still a very, very tense situation, and I just got, again, overwhelmed. I just wanted to get off the bus and, and run. I did not want to be there. And it was, you know, one of those moments where the Holy Spirit just directs my attention to this this bus driver. I didn't know this bus driver from anybody, but I just fixated on him. And I just remember the Holy Spirit dropping into my heart. Is this guy worth it? You know, if if this doesn't end well for you and you lose your life, then you're going to open your eyes in heaven. But this guy has a family probably that you've never met. And God loves him as much as he loves you. And Jesus Christ shed his blood so that that guy and his children and his children's children could come to know me as well. And if I shed my blood so that you could know me, are you willing to shed your blood so that that he can know me as well? That's what Paul is looking full in the face of and saying, yes, it is worth it. Is that not, Paul says, what I owe to the gospel? I mean, think about this, friends. Where would you be had Jesus chosen not to come and die for you? Where would you be? Let me give you an answer to that. You'd be in exactly the same place that what? 2.2 billion people are in the world without you? because it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a 1,000 times, if nobody ever heard about it. How could we receive the extravagant grace of the gospel and then not be willing to suffer, to give, to sacrifice for those that have never heard? Don't we owe it to them? Paul continues, verse 25, and so I become its, that is the church's, servant. By the way, servant is a better word choice in my opinion for the Greek word here then is minister which is the way the ESV translates it. Once again, the CSB and Southern Baptists get it right. Um, It is servant is a better word because I think servant often, I mean, minister often makes you think of a professional position, which is not what Paul is going for. Paul is emphasizing that he sees himself as being in such debt to the gospel that he sees himself as a servant of the church with nothing that the church really owes him, which makes me ask a question, is that primarily how you see yourself? You know, for those of us going into the ministry, here's, it's really easy to get this confused because we're going to make our living from the ministry, which is proper. But do I see myself primarily as the servant of the church or the beneficiary of the church? That is a question you have to ask and you will have to ask repeatedly because that question, how you answer that will affect how you respond to opportunity. Look, can I say this? Let me... I just want to be careful how I say this because I I don't judge anybody and nobody answers to me on this, but would please, for you that are going into the pastorate, please do not do the thing where you serve somewhere for three years until you can find a bigger church to call you and you can just work your way up until you get the size church that you think you deserve. That is not a servant of the church, that is using the church. Yes, I realize God might call you somewhere else and I'm not the judge of that, but I also know way too many people that are only here because you're the platform for me to get to the next level. It'll affect how you respond to criticism. It'll affect how you respond to the salary package they offer you. It will affect every single thing that you do in ministry, how, whether I am a servant of the church or whether I'm the beneficiary of the church. It'll affect what I get discouraged about, what I'm dissatisfied by. It'll affect the power of God in my ministry. I remember learning something a few years ago, just said never really, just kind of jolting to me. Um, James 4. James is talking to a group of people and he tells them why God's not answering their prayers you have not because you ask not but a bunch of you ask you're all into prayer you do all night prayer meetings but God doesn't answer your prayer because you pray like adulterers this isn't it which is a very gripping analogy I don't mean to make you uncomfortable but just think about that what is praying like an adulterer what would that be like I'm a very happily married man okay I've been married for, for 19 years now let's say I go to my wife Veronica and I say Veronica 19 years ago, you promised that you would fulfill my romantic and sexual needs. Let me tell you how I think you should do that. I want you to talk to your friend so-and-so and and your friend so-and-so and and your friend so-and-so and and I want you to convince them that they should sleep with me. Now, what is my wife, how is she going to respond to that? That is not what I signed up for when I was committing myself to you. At that point, I've taken her from a wife and turned her into a, well, to use vernacular, a pimp. What James is saying, I believe in James chapter four, is when you and I ask God to give us something so that we can find something in that thing that we should be finding in him, we're praying like an adulterer. When we say, God, I need you to give me a big ministry and you cloak it in the, cloak it in the language of, I'm doing this for the kingdom, but it's actually about you. You're no longer saying thy kingdom come, you're saying my kingdom come. And God would say, why aren't you rejoicing in me? Why is isn't, why it isn't my calling on, why isn't that your identity? Why is it my presence? Why isn't that your joy? Why do you need a big church and for everybody to know your name in order for you to feel like you're satisfied? Aren't there things you promise? I promise that I will fulfill, fulfill in myself. You're praying like an adulterer because you're looking to find something in somebody else that you should be finding in me and you're asking me to be the pimp that sets the whole thing up. Here's how it gets revealed. Um, you, 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 you deal with jealousy that's the, that's the easiest sign that you're not a servant of the church. And I'll just, just so we're all on the same page. I, I'm not past this. Man, I find myself constantly looking at other people and like, why did he get that opportunity? Why, why did his book sell like that? Why did he get put on that stage and not me? It, it happened. It was a defining moment. Um, it's about a decade ago now where I was praying for our city, uh, the, you know, Raleigh-Durham. And I was praying, y'all, that God would send a revival to this city like nothing that North Carolina had ever seen. I mean, the kind of things that when they're writing the book, history books hundred years from now, if Jesus hadn't come back, man, they talk about this revival. I'm like, God, send this awakening, send this revival. And this is one of those moments where the Holy Spirit, He doesn't speak audibly to me all the time, and this wasn't audible, but I knew that it was His voice. He said, okay, what if I say yes to that prayer? And what if I send an awakening like the triangle has never seen? But I don't use your church in that process. What if somebody else's church gets big and not yours? What if when the history book is written, they don't even ever mention you? You still, you still wanna pray this prayer? No, y'all, I know, I know the right answer. Oh yes, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. That, that might've been the right answer. That was not my answer. My answer was no. I want to be included in this process and i suddenly realized in that moment that all these prayers that I've been saying, thy kingdom come, what i would really been saying is, is my kingdom come. John the Baptist understood this. You know, John chapter three, he's got this defining moment in his ministry, doesn't he? Where everybody's starting to pay less attention to him and start paying more attention to Jesus, his cousin. Remember this? Remember how John responds? He responds with, he must increase, I must decrease. But then he gives an analogy that is just fascinating. He talks about the friends of the bridegroom. I, I know we don't do weddings the same way they did in those days, but I think this still applies. You know, the best man at a wedding, what's his job? Well, traditionally his job is to make sure that the bride and groom get together safely, it all works. I've done a lot of weddings, so if many of you, you know that moment when all of a sudden the back doors open and there she stands in all her resplendent glory, what happens? Everybody pulls out their tissues and they, and they look at two places, everybody loves this, it's cheesy and it makes me feel queasy every time, but they look at her and they look at him and look at her and look at him and see, is he getting a tear, is this marriage gonna work? You know, just like they're going back and forth, all right? You know, look into that. And she's always looking right at him, He's always looking right at her. Now I want you to imagine that right here, you get the best man, okay? This is Jesus, John's analogy. As their eyes are making contact, the groom and the bride, you see the best man suddenly lean out and you know, kind of raise his eyebrows at her, <laughs> wink at her, you know, starts you know trying to direct her attention away to himself, what is going to happen? Well, if the groom sees that, he's gonna turn around and punch the best man in the throat, right, because he's, not, he's supposed to be invisible at this point. And now he's redirecting the attention of the bride onto the friend of the bridegroom and not the groom. What John is saying is, how dare I in ministry desire an attention for myself when really the only thing that I should care about is what attention is going to Jesus. Jealousy is the sign that it's no longer about Jesus, it's about you. And Paul says, I'm a servant of the church, and if I gotta spend time in prison so that you can be saved, and people are gonna ruin my reputation and call me all kinds of names, that's okay. Because it's not been about me anyway. I'm the servant. According to God, what time am I supposed to be done? You know what, David Platt would preach for another 45 minutes, so you're gonna give me another 10, all right? (laughs) I am the servant (laughs) according to God's commission that was given to me for you. I love those phrases, given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The word commission there in context means individual assignment. Paul is saying it was given specifically to me, not to everybody, but to me for you. You see, God does not just have this great big global mission that he assigns to the church at large. He does every nation, people, you know, people, every, every group, he has that, but he also has an individual assignment. A commission for you he has a specific purpose for your time your talents and your treasures in the in the world a commission for you and it's the kind of thing where if you don't do it it won't get done oh this is totally silly but in my research for this message I, I stumbled across this and I'm like I have to share this this is how we do sermon research you ever seen those you had one job fails you ever seen those? here's some of my favorites I found this picture isn't that fantastic like like really like, you can't look at that and tell that's not Batman. Um, or this one right there. Hmm, <laughs> close, close, not quite. Oh, this is my, one of my favorite ones. The Flat Earth Society has members all around the globe. You're like, somebody, that's an actual tweet. And this one, name here, name here. I, I pulled those pictures up because I thought, that's kind of what Paul is saying in the kingdom of God, is that you've got this kind of like, your name here, your name here. There's some assignment in the body of Christ that has your name on it. One of the things I've realized is that not everything that comes from heaven has my name on it, but uh, there are a few things that do. And my job is in communion with the Holy Spirit to figure what, what that is for me. You can see the development in the Apostle Paul's life. You know, when, Paul, 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 uh, when the Apostle Paul starts out in his ministry, he's debating Jews and he's, you know, doing this stuff over here. And he's, he's got a lot of things on his plate. But as he goes longer in ministry, by the end of Romans, Romans 15, remember what he says? I've determined now to only to preach Christ where he's never been named. God was narrowing the commission for him and that's what Paul called it, a, a stewardship. It's what God has given to me for you. That's the way the ESV translates that word, a stewardship. In fact, in scripture, if you don't use your stewardship for the purposes God gave it to you for, God considers it stealing. Paul in Romans 1.14 called himself a debtor to the Romans. I'm under obligation to bring you the gospel. If not, I'm stealing from you. When you're in financial obligation to somebody else, your money is no longer yours to use as you see fit. Hey, bad news, you owe the credit card $100,000. Man, that first $2,000 you get in your paycheck, that belongs to them. You can no longer spend it the way you want. Paul says, I'm under obligation to people around the world who've never heard the gospel because I understand that God gave me this grace that I did not deserve, but he gave it to me for them and I owe something to them. For me to receive this kind of grace and not give it, is stealing. It's a commission given to me for you. God has called me to those groups of people. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament where the prophet Micah discusses the same concept. Micah 6, 8, he has shown to you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. This is always, this is what I want to know, right? What, what do you want from me, God? Like what is, what's the, three things, Christian life in a nutshell, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, Justice for us typically means that we're being fair and we're not stealing. But see, in the Bible, just also means, listen, it's sort of a paradigm changer. In the Bible, just means that you are using what God gave you for the purposes God gave it to you for. It is unjust, that's the word that it uses. It is unjust, the Old Testament says, in almost 200 different places for those in positions of privilege not to leverage that privilege for those without it. That is not a matter of charity. In God's eyes, it's a matter of justice. Lostness and poverty around the world require something of us who are wealthy. And I know people in our churches, and I know especially seminary students, you're like, well, well I'm not wealthy. But so I have to teach this to our congregation. If you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% worldwide. Top 1%. of the world's population, less than 5% lives in North America, 25% of the world's resources are here. Don't feel guilty about that. That's what the free enterprise system and limited government and accountable government does, and we want that for everybody. So don't feel guilty about the fact that all this wealth has been created here. But it does require something of us, because every week 100,000 kids die of starvation and preventable hunger-related diseases. Two and a half billion live in substandard housing without adequate nourishment or consistent access to clean water. That requires something of us. American Christians, evangelical Christians have a combined annual income of $5 trillion, which makes us the wealthiest faith community in history. I saw this recently. This is amazing. Let me give you a list. Danny Akin's vision for Southeastern is bold, but let me give you this list. And I want you to, in your head, calculate how much you think this would cost. If we were to sponsor, our goal was to sponsor 1 million indigenous full-time missionaries for unreached people groups. 1 million. Completely fund the fight against global malaria. Quadruple the global missions budget of all mission agencies engaged in reaching unevangelized, Provide food, clothing, and shelter to all 6.5 million refugees in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Triple the Bible, the global Bible translation product. Fund 150,000 seminary scholarships for promising students in emerging economies double the operating budget of Compassion and World Vision who deal with orphans, establish eight new Christian universities around the world, hire 25,000 additional American missionaries to work on our college campuses. How much do you think all that would cost? The price tag. It could be accomplished if the evangelical community gave just 0.4% of its income. One out of every $250 they make, additional to work in the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, God has put everything necessary for the evangelizing and transforming the world in the hands of the church. And we're looking at God saying, God, when are you gonna move in the world? And God says, I've already given it to you. I've given just the American Christian, I've given just the evangelical community everything they need to get it done. Lostness in the world requires something of us. Don't overlook that. Some of you are motivated by suffering. You should be, right? Eternal suffering, lostness is where we turn our attention. to Do justice. To love mercy, now Micah turns a crank, not only does God want me to do justice, he wants me to love mercy, showing mercy. Why? Because I'm the recipient of great mercy. Again, where would you be if Jesus chose not to die for you? That's the same place millions are without you. Tell you one quick story here that I I think I've shared this here before, but I share it because of those of you that are being commissioned. It was the last conversation I had with a guy before I left Southeast Asia to come back. Um, His name was Ishmael. He was an Islamic youth pastor. He was my first friend there. We spent two years, he taught me the language. I shared the gospel with him a dozen times. Every time I shared the gospel with him, he would always say the same thing to me. He'd always look at me and he put his hand on my shoulder because they're very touchy over there and it made me uncomfortable. But he put his hand on my shoulder. And he would say, JD, my brother, you are a great man of faith. You surely make your mom and dad proud. He said, But you're a Christian because you were born Christian. I am Muslim because I was born Muslim. That's how it has been. That's how it will always be. Every single time, that was his line. Um a week before I went home, I wanted to share the gospel with him one more time, and I sat him down and I, I'm telling you, I pled with him. To open his heart to Jesus. I went through the whole, and he just said every time, he said, he said, he said you, you move me. He says, you're a great man of faith. You make your mom and dad very proud, but I am Muslim. And I was born Muslim. That's how it always been. So we get to, um, he lived about an hour for me at that point. I thought that was the last I'd ever see him. Day I left to come home, he shows up. And I could just tell something was like bothering him. And I'm like, Ishmael, you need to talk? I, I wasn't even expecting to see you today. He said, yes, I need to talk. He takes me in the back and we spent about an hour and a half that I didn't have. We spent an hour and a half that he just said, I need to tell you this. I don't know if you call it dream or he kept not be speaking in his language. He's mimpi, vision. He said in this vision, he said, I was, I was suddenly walking around my house and suddenly in between my, my feet here, this road called the Jalan Lurus, which in their language means a straight and narrow way. It grew from my feet up into heaven. He said it went all the way up to heaven. And then his eyes got really big and he said, and you were on it. He was so surprised. I was kind of offended. I was like, <laughs> literally, that's what I've been telling you for two years, man. And, and he says, you were on it. He said, and then he says, I watched you get all the way up to heaven's doors. And there was these big doors and I thought that's where your journey ended because no one could get in these doors. He said, but somebody inside heaven knew who you were. They called your name. Then the doors opened and you went in and the doors closed. He said, and my heart wanted to break. He said, because I wanted to go with you. He said, but I thought it was too late. He said, but then when I thought the dream was over, he said, the doors reopened and you came back down and you walked all the way back down to my house and you reached out and you grabbed my hand and you pulled me onto your back and you carried me into surga, into heaven with you. He said his exact words. He says, "At first, I think this was dream that come from eating strange fish. (laughs) Ikan asing." He said, "But I have many of those kinds of dreams. This is not dream. This is dream from Allah." Can you tell me what my dream means? Now, y'all had a lot of classes at Southeastern that I was very grateful for. Dream interpretation was not one of those classes. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, you've heard it here. I knew exactly what to say in that moment. I was like, bro, you were so in luck. Dream Interpretation is my spiritual gift, so sit down. <laughs> and I'd love to tell you he became a Christian. He did not. Um, to my knowledge, to this day he not. I've been back three times and tried to find him. His family, all of his family died in the tsunami in 2004. I knew that. He didn't die because he wrote me afterwards. By God's grace, one day, one day I'll find him. But what he said to me next he said he just it was too much for him it was too much the everything he said i know that that what my dream means is that you were sent here by god to show me the way of salvation he said my brother tomorrow or this afternoon you go home and you are the only christian i have ever known who will teach me the way of salvation there's not a single person that we send out from the summit church that i don't think about ishmael with because it's not fair that I'm the recipient of this kind of salvation and I not do something to take the gospel to Ishmael. When we talk about 2.2 billion people, I don't hear a stat. You shouldn't hear a stat. You need to think about individuals made in the image of God, like you're made in the image of God that are going to hell for them is every bit the tragedy it would be for you. It's our commission. Not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it, but something does, which is the last phrase. To walk humbly with your God, right? That's a relational dimension, right? What gave the ability, the church in Acts, the ability to transform the world was that there was a group of people without money or power that just listened to the Holy Spirit. And God put them in the right places at the right time, poor people without money and influence, just responding to the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they turned the world upside down without anybody in Congress, without any funds, without money, without book contracts or conferences, just people obeying the Holy Spirit. Listen, I'm going to give you something. I pray that you will interpret it correctly. The Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts 59 different times. In 36 of the 59, he is speaking. Now, I get it. I understand things are different in Acts. They're writing the Bible and they're apostles. I get that. But I'm sorry, you cannot convince me that the only book that God gave us with narrative stories about people following Jesus is filled with a bunch of stories of people whose experience have nothing in common with us. And that is just different back then. I don't know how he always speaks. It's a little frustrating for me because the New Testament, I mean, I does not really tell you, It just says he said, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry. I'm like, well, how do you say it? Everybody get a text message, it appear on the screen, everybody think the same thought at once, Spelled out in the cheerio, I, I don't know. There might be some ambiguity about how he speaks, but there is no ambiguity that he speaks. And by the way, I'll say something else, just to, in case you're not mad. Um, I read this thing in a missions journal recently that The denomination that does the best job mobilizing its people for mission per capita i know you're like it's us we're awesome that's what i thought it's baptist we're Baptist. i mean we got all the mission speakers david platt name them all just go through them david platt john piper they're all louis they're all baptists i'm like all right gonna be baptists pentecostals they said the emphasis in pentecostal churches is what the holy spirit is calling you to and this article says something very quickly that caught my attention it says evidently Being gift-driven is even more empowering than being guilt-driven. Because Baptists like to talk about the weightiness of the task, and you leave overwhelmed with how much there is to do, Pentecostals walk out with this sense of, this is what God is calling me to do. Yes we need both, but there is a commission to walk humbly with God. I think that's all embedded in what Paul is saying when he says, commissioned. So let me ask, are you doing those three things, are you fulfilling your commission? There's some other great stuff, but you know what? I know that you give me the time. I know you'd be gracious with it, but let's just say verses 26 to 60, 28 are awesome, but we're just going to leave them where they are. All right. <laughs> because Paul talks about the mystery of what Christ in him. Okay. I'll say one last thing on that one then. And then we be done I promise. Just real quick. I'm not going to go into the whole last thing there. Paul talks about the mystery of Christ and it's a mystery. He says that Christ would be a part of our lives. But I think when you read it, there's an implication of also the mystery is what it does in the church and what it does to people and the unity it creates and the generosity, that it, the bond it creates between people. And what Paul is saying is there's a mystery that we're stewards of that we go out and when we carry into the world, we're going into it as people who just put mystery on display and people look at us and say, that's weird. There's no way to explain that. It reminded me of a story I read when actually I was with overseas with the 2 plus 2 program the story you may have know it of, of William Borden William Borden was a guy about your age heir to the Borden milk company which back in the 1920s was a big deal it was one of your big five all of it was going to come to him he resigned ownership and all of it left to go be a missionary in Egypt where everybody told him he was crazy wrote a series of things in a journal that is the reason we know a lot of this story but been there what what less than Less than three months when he contracted meningitis and died. Three months, died in Egypt. People asked him, one of his friends asked him if he would regret this whole coming to Egypt thing. He couldn't even talk. He just wrote, took out a pen and wrote two words that have become very famous in a journal. He just wrote no regrets. He's buried, they say, in a very out of the way place in Cairo, a very plain looking tombstone. Simply got his name and the dates of his short life and one phrase. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Mystery. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength works powerfully in me. All right, we're pulling back into the station. Our big bus tour is finished. Here are the questions. Number one, where and how are you filling up Christ's afflictions? Where and how are you filling up Christ's afflictions? Is that the attitude you have to ministry? Number two, are you fulfilling your commission? Are you listening to God? Not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it, but something does. And you need to be perceiving what that is. And three, is your life so different from those around you that it can only be called a mystery? Can it be said of your life that apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life? Why don't you pray? Why don't you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father... We're here because of a great sacrifice that that you chose not to die for us, which you could have chosen not to do, we'd be lost. Every breath I take, every friend I have, every creature comfort I enjoy, every moment I live outside of hell is a gift of grace I do not deserve, and I know that requires something of me. So Father, I ask that you mold especially this group that is being commissioned. That you mold them into servants, that you establish their individual commission, that you give them a love of sacrifice because of a love of people. God, I pray that they would do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with their God. I pray in Jesus'
0: name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.